if you are a man and eat breakfast. That's called a tautology. Of course, if you're a man, you eat breakfast. So uh, come on, be a part of that. Welcome, well done, hell's good to see you all this morning. <laughs> our, uh, our creativity team, I don't know, they're not getting enough sleep or something, but that's just over the top. That, that, was, that was incredible. Uh, but we really do want to say thanks to all the volunteers uh, here at Wilton Hills Church, and it's a good portion of you, and we really appreciate you. Uh, you know, think about all the ministries that, that take place here that, that are required to keep this thing going. Children's ministry, folding the bulletins, taking care of the building. I mean, there's just a million things. And folks step up to the plate. Most of them unrecognized. They don't get acknowledged. They just do it because uh, it's, it's the work of the Lord. And, and we just want to say thank you. Uh, really, this is what uh, this is all about. So uh, stop by at the end of the service and um, get a donut and say thanks to these folks and uh, fellowship with some other people. I also want to, uh, and Mary just reminded me because I forgot the first two services, uh, that we'd like to update you on the financial situation here at Wilden Hills Church. And uh, rather than carve out a little bit of time in the service, we have it on our website. And we encourage you to go there. There's a video that kind of gives a report of where we're at. And, um, and so uh, just kind of be aware of, of our situation here and pray about how God would use you to address that situation. And the only other thing I want to say before we get into the message is, um, uh, and I, I, I'm sure I don't have to even remind you of this, but uh, keep Boston in prayer, keep the families in prayer over this atrocity that happened this last week, uh, the families that lost loved ones, um, and the, the, the city, uh, keep, it, keep it all in prayer. But also, as kingdom people, always remember that uh, we have a unique perspective on things. Um, and when, when tragedies like this happen, when it calls out the best and the worst of people. The best is that you see incredible heroism and altruism and sacrifice being done. And that is wonderful and beautiful. And the way we rally around people who are hurting is just wonderful. But whenever a nation, uh, it's true of all nations, including ours, whenever it comes under some kind of attack... Uh, it can also bring out the worst aspects of tribalism, the us-then mindset, and we're seeing some of that going on. And as kingdom people, we're always to transcend tribalism, right, and nationalism. Uh, absolutely pray and empathize with those who are hurting, but remember that um, our call is to have a global perspective. It's interesting, but the, the same day that we had three people killed here by a bomb in the States, uh, there were 80 people killed by a bomb in, in, in Iraq, same day. But to find that story, you had to go to the back of the newspaper, and it was a little tiny paragraph like that. And I don't know how much of this is normal or how, how much of it is, is part of our fallen mindset. I suppose some of it's normal that when, it, when folks on your own uh, turf get hurt, it me- means more than when folks somewhere else get hurt. But as, uh, I, I don't know how much of that normal or how much of this fallen, but I do know that as kingdom people, we're called to have a love, to acknowledge that all people uh, have an unsurpassable worth because Jesus died for them. And Iraqi lives count as much as American lives, right? And the life of the bomber counts as much as the life of the victims, right? And so we're to pray for enemies and pray for that young man and pray for the families uh, that, that, that are associated with that young man to keep it all covered in prayer. And so I want to have a, definitely a love for our own who hurt, but also a love for others and to transcend the tribalism uh, that is the, uh, the worldly point of view. Amen? Amen. That's what it's about in the kingdom. Yes. And so we're uh, talking about faith. In reality these days, how'd that exercise go this week? 
I've been encouraging you to every day, preferably in the morning, start by setting aside some time where you see the true you. Uh, You spend time consecrating your imagination to the Lord and envision you as you truly are. Take out uh, an episode of your life where you manifest the worst of yourself and then run that episode seeing yourself as, as you would look if you manifested the truth of who you are in Christ. And do that over and over and over again. And then cultivate that as a habit of thought throughout the day. We are all throughout the day running images, pictures, soundtracks uh, that express a faith, a, a faith in what we expect to be real, what we expect to be true, anticipating the future, worrying about the future, regretting the past. It's all, it's all there, and we run it as pictures, as sounds in our brain. It's all, all of our thinking takes place in our imagination, and it's a way of having faith. And unfortunately, most of what we run automatically is stuff we inherited from the world, and it's not true. So what it is to be a kingdom person, to be a disciple of Jesus, is to first and foremost take every thought captive to Christ, where we are going to be intentional that what we run in our mind, in our imagination, throughout the day is true. The stuff that God says is true, and to put more trust in what God says is true than we put in any other voice in our past, any other voice in the world. That takes great intentionality because we've been up to this point programmed to think in terms of the lie, the worldly point of view. And so we need to be very disciplined about uh, uh, making sure that, that what we run between our ears is, um, is true stuff. I have found if, if at the end of the day you look back and examine how your day went in terms of manifesting the character of Abba Father, that the thing that most determines the quality of my life in terms of the kingdom has not been what happened to me throughout that day. It's, it wasn't the the circumstances I found myself in, the most important variable is what happened between my ears. Did I stay awake? Did I remember who I was in Christ? Did I envision myself as I was in Christ? And I found that if I can do that regularly throughout the day, I respond to my world around me in a way that manifests the character of Abba Father uh, much better than when I don't do that. And so I encourage us to start in the morning by setting aside time to envision truth. See it. This is what faith is. Hebrews 11.1. I can't teach it too much. Faith is the, the substantiating of things hoped for. Hupostasis. And the, the conviction of things not seen. Elegkos. We, we are to see as a substantial reality in our mind what is true. And, and seeing that, it creates a conviction that it is so that motivates us to step into it in our, into our life. That's faith. It's the first step of faith. And so this is what we're to be doing all day long. Faith is a verb. It always occurs in the now. Pay attention to how you're seeing yourself. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what's going on, let God be true and every thought that disagrees with him a liar, every voice that disagrees with him a liar, every experience that disagrees with him a liar, let God be true. Lock that in. And let your mind, <clears throat> mind and life line up with what is true. It's all about congruity. So we're uh, looking at Colossians chapter 3 these days, more specifically Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 these days. We're never in a hurry, but today we're actually going to advance one verse. A whole verse, yeah, I'm telling you. So here's what it says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
And here's the new verse. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let us pray. Abba Father, I just bless every person in this auditorium who uh, made the decision to come out, worship with God's people and to be in your presence and to hear this message. And I, I bless every podrishioner in our pod congregation. Uh, God, I, I bless them and bless those who are listening to this message through some other means. And I pray, God, by the power of your spirit, you make this word come alive and write it into our brains and into our hearts to bring your kingdom. Cause the coin to drop in the slot. Lord, for some who need it, set them free. I pray especially, God, that the stronghold of unforgiveness would be broken this morning. God, any other blockage that keeps us from walking in the reality that you've created through the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, remove it, God, and help us to be a people to, who walk in the faith that what you say is true is in fact true, and we manifest that in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen indeed. So the pattern that we've seen... And Paul's writings, all of Paul's, all, all of Paul's writings is this. Paul, and we saw in 2 Corinthians 5 and in Colossians 3, you find this in Romans 6, it's all over the place. Paul first states what is real, and then he states what we should think and believe and imagine based on what is real, and then he states how we should be, behave based on what is real. Here's what's real, therefore here's how you should think, therefore here's how you should behave. It's all about congruity, getting our mind and our life to be in congruity with what God says is real. Everything in the kingdom, everything about salvation, everything about the good news is all about congruity. It's really that simple, getting our mind and our life to line up with what God says is true. God creates the reality. That's God's grace. God's grace manifested in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, creates this reality when Jesus died. If one died, for, if one died for all, then all have died. Paul says in Second Corinthians five. The new reality is that as all were in Adam, so all are in Christ. The new reality created in the death and resurrection of Jesus is that that everything that stood between us and God has been removed. Praise God. The new reality is that all sin has been abolished. All strongholds have been abolished. All addictions have been abolished. All oppression has been abolished. All injustice has been abolished. All alienation from God has been abolished. All rebellion has been abolished. Every stronghold, everything that separated us from God has been abolished. And therefore, the new reality created in the death and resurrection of Jesus is that all is forgiven. All is reconciled. All is harmonized. All is peaceful. All is made well. That's the new reality created by the outlandish grace of God manifested in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's there. And that's why Paul says, you are already chosen. You are already holy. You are already beloved. You can't achieve that. You can't strive for that. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to work towards it. It's real. It's done. It was created with the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see? I don't, I, I don't care how unchosen you feel. You're chosen. Sorry. I don't care how unholy you appear, you're holy, uh, deal with it. You know, I don't care how unloved you feel, you are loved with an everlasting love. A love that could not possibly be approved of, that's, that's already done. Our job is to just agree with that. It, that is the kingdom right there, that's salvation, that's the good news. 
The good news is the best news. It's the most wonderful, mind-boggling, outlandish, unfathomable news you can possibly imagine. If, you, if it sounds too good to be true, that just means you're going down the right path because it's, it's infinitely better than that. God's already done it. It's already done. And our job then is to agree with that, to, to get our mind and our life to line up with that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Grace alone creates the reality. Faith alone then accesses it or applies it to our life, gets in line with it. And the more in line we are with what is real, the more we experience it as real, and therefore the more we manifest it as real. And that's how the kingdom of God spreads. We become conduits of the kingdom. So Paul says, therefore, since this is already true, since you are already chosen, holy, and beloved, therefore put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. I'm saying put it on. He's not saying strive for it as though you didn't already have it. No, he's saying put it on as, as in put it into practice. As in to get your mind and life to line up with what is true. Put it on in your mind by seeing it as a substantial reality. Envision this. Think about yourself the way you actually are. Envision this. And then as you envision this, it creates that, that conviction that it is so. And then look for opportunities to step into it and live it out and manifest it. You can think of your will as a valve, as I said last week. In fact, the title of this message is keeping the valve open. I forgot to mention that a little earlier, but now it's an appropriate time, I figure. Keep the valve open, because your will is a valve. The reality is there, okay, like a water behind a dam. And, and, and your will is the valve that opens it up. And when we align our will with reality, it allows the reality of the new creation that was created by God's grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus, it allows that reality to flow into our life. The will is simply the choice to trust that what God says is true, and to therefore commit to seeing it as true, imagining it as true, envisioning it as true, and therefore to commit to living it as true. And the more we do that, the more that, that, that new creation reality flows into us, and we experience it as real, and then we manifest it as real. And that is what then spreads the kingdom, the mustard seed kingdom. As people see the beauty of that, it attracts them, and they get invited into it. But the will can also close us off to that reality. To the extent that we, our mind and our life is in disagreement with what is real, in contradiction to what is real, to that degree, we block that reality from flowing into our life. So to that degree, we don't experience it as true. It doesn't feel true. It maybe even feels outlandish. It feels too good to be true. And therefore, we don't manifest it in our life. And to that degree, we can't be used by God as conduits of the kingdom. Everything hangs upon congruity. Everything hangs. The salvation, the, the, the kingdom, the gospel, it's all about getting our, our mind and life to line up, being congruity with what God says is true. Here's a diagram that I've used uh, before, but it applies to this message, and I think it will help make this clear. Here's God's design. As God, uh, as God created things to work. Now, a lot of times people think that we are, human beings are body and spirit, as though there's just two aspects to us. But in fact, the Bible says there's three aspects to us. There's the spirit, soul, and body. Uh, the spirit is our innermost being. It's more fundamental than our, even our conscious self. It's the core of who we are. It's the orientation of our, of our heart, our innermost being. Our, our soul, it's the Greek word suke. We get the word psyche from it, psychology from it. And our soul is really our experienced self. 
the way that we experience ourselves. Uh, it's, it involves our thought and our feeling, our, our anticipation, our memories. It's our, our experienced unitary self. That's our soul. And in God's design, God wants to communicate to our spirit what is true. And then our spirit is to tell our soul, our brain, our mind what is true. A lot of times people think that they are their thoughts, but in fact, you transcend your thoughts. That's why you can tell yourself what your thoughts should be. If there wasn't a part of you that was more than your thoughts, you couldn't tell your brain what to think. But you can tell yourself what to think. The Bible commands us to tell our, our brain what to think. Uh, and, and so in God's design, he would tell our spirit what is true. Our spirit tells our brain what is true. Our, our brain then tells our body how to act in accordance with what is true. Our body then impacts the world according to truth. And now God is Lord over the world through us. That's been his plan all along. We're his viceroys. We're his deputies. We're to be his landlords. We're here to administrate his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And, and here's, here's how it looks. So God wants to be Lord over the whole world through us. And that implies congruity. Congruity between God and our spirit, our spirit and our mind, our mind and our body, our body and the world. Everything we do in the world is done via our body, right? So in this model, in God's design, we're defined from the top down and from the inside out. Top down, God to spirit. Inside out, spirit to brain to body to world. Got it? Now, as you know, most of you know, in our primordial past, our distance past, our forefathers and foremothers rebelled against God and brought this race into bondage to Satan and an alienation from God. It's called the fall. And when we did that, we surrendered our authority over to God's arch enemy, Satan. So Satan is now called, Paul calls him this, it's a very odd phrase. He says he is, Satan is the ruler, the word is archon, of the authority, exousia, of the air. Archon refers to the highest ruler in any kind of, in any, any given region or domain. And the authority of the air in first century cosmology, in, in first century way of looking at the world, the air was, in, was, was seen as the authority over the earth. The domain of authority over the earth. Not the highest authority, but the authority over the earth. So here Paul is saying that Satan is the ruler of this authority over the earth. His rulership um, uh, pollutes everything. And so what Satan does, he is the cosmic pervert. Because the word pervert, in the Latin it's perversio, it means to turn upside down. He turns everything upside down. And so here's Satan's design. It's the direct antithesis, the opposite of God's design. Whereas God wants us to be defined from the top down, inside out, Satan wants to rule from the bottom up, outside in. So Satan uses his authority over the world in our environment, this polluted environment, to then come at us through our body. Uh, messages through our eyes and our ears that go into our brain, and then our brain tells us who we are. Right? It's, it's defined from the top, from the bottom up, uh, outside in. Uh, everything that comes into our brain from the world comes in through our five senses. That's our body. So Satan uses the world to impact our body, which then communicates to our mind what we think is true, which then we conclude in our spirit being is our identity. It's a false self that we inherit from the world. So, for example, a young lady I knew, I'll call her Candace, for lack of a better name, uh, Candace. And um, Candace was uh, this young lady who um, grew up in a family where the father uh, gave a lot more attention to the two sons than he ever gave to her. 
uh, gave attention and in sports and in academic achievements was was all accolades for the brothers. But Candace, even though she was actually better than her brothers at both, got hardly any recognition for that. What Candace got recognition for were her looks. Father would always comment on her looks. A lot of times it was negative. Putting on a couple pounds, aren't you? Do you really need that extra chocolate cake? Your hair's kind of disheveled. That, looked, that, that dress just doesn't look good on you. Uh, yeah, that makeup isn't working for you. But sometimes it's positive. Man, you've lost a little bit of weight, haven't you? I really like the way you've been disciplined about your eating. That, you, you, you're, that's looking, that dress really does you justice. Uh, that, oh, your hair looks good like that. And it's good to have some affirmations along those lines. But see, when, when that's all you get, well, it has a message, doesn't it? An obvious one. Uh, Candace gets the message that, in fact, her worth, her identity, her value as a human being is how she can impress a man, please a man, turn on a man, get noticed by a man. So it's not surprising that Candace, around the age of 12, develops an obsession with her looks, her hair, and makeup, and, and she develops an eating disorder around the age of 14 and becomes promiscuous around the age of 16. Now, the father isn't demonic. The father is just passing on the old junk, fallen tapes that he inherited. This patriarchal, sexist culture, that's what he inherited. That's probably what he saw his father doing. So he just passes on that. The generational sin. Until someone breaks it on the authority of God, it just goes on and on and on. So the father just regurgitates the same old crap. But see, Satan, being the, the, the authority of this realm, uses that to give Candace a false self. Uh, all those words come to Candace through her eyes, through her ears, through her experience. It, uh, the environment impacts her. Then it goes into her brain, and her brain concludes, this is who I am. I am. My worth is found in how I impress a man, how I get noticed, and so on and so on and so on. Now, here's, here, here's what happens with, for a redeemed person. Candace, she ends up giving her life to the Lord. She submits to the Lord, and, and that means in the core of her being, her innermost self, her spirit... She becomes, instead of being a self-centered person, she becomes a God-centered person. That's the, the decisive difference. And the minute Candace does that, and the minute any of us do that, all the things that the Bible says is true about us get applied to us. She is a new creature in Christ Jesus, holy and spotless, chosen, beloved, and so on and so on and so on. So she's defined from the top down to the point of her soul, her mind. But her mind still keeps on going on autopilot with the same old junk tapes she inherited from her father and other sources in this world. The mind doesn't get automatically transformed. It'd be nice if it did, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. And God doesn't do that because, see, the goal of this whole thing is to reinstate us as rulers of, of this earth under his authority. We're to be his viceroys, his, his deputies, and we're to have this authority. And, and God wants to be the one to define our spirit, but he empowers us to tell our brains what to think. This is our organic computer. It's our responsibility. And if we're going to take authority over the earth, we first got to take authority over this part of the earth, the, the three pounds plot of land between our ears. And so that's why the Bible so emphasizes over and over again. You take every thought captive to Christ. You'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You, 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 you decide what you're going to think, Philippians 4.8 on things that are true and noble. So he empowers us to do this. So our, 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 our brain goes on the auto tapes that it's always had, and we continue to get messages, lying messages, deceptive messages, coming at us through this world that's still oppressed by Satan by means of our body all the time, watching shows, listening to the radio. All these messages are coming at us. So we're defined from the top down to the point of our spirit. Uh, top down to the point of our spirit. Uh, Dan, can you show the, re the redeemed diagram? God to spirit to soul. 
in terms of uh, up to that point. But then we still are in this world where we're oppressed by Satan, using the world to impact our body to tell our mind what to think. We're, 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 there's this two-pronged process going on. Top down to the point of the soul, bottom up to the point of the soul. Which means the battlefield, folks, is the soul. Is your mind, your brain. And that's why this is the valve. This is the all-important battle. This is the all-important battle. To be a disciple of the brain. To take thoughts captive. This is, this is where we decide the degree to which our life is going to reflect the kingdom. To the degree to which it's going to uh, reflect reality. Why it's so vital that we are a people who set aside time regularly to think, imagine, envision, substantiate what is true, what's true about God, what's true about ourselves, what's true about others, and to come against all the garbage in our brain that disagrees with that. And then throughout the day to cultivate that mindset, to be envisioning this, to be dreaming the dreams about what is true, to combat all the, the junk tapes that are there. And, and to the degree, and only to the degree that we are aligning our minds substantially with what is true, and then our lives with what is true, to that degree we will experience it and manifest it, and be a means by which the mustard seed grows. But to the degree that we're not in alignment with that, well, we're going to find that we don't experience it as true, and therefore don't manifest it as true, and we, we live our lives as a worldling, uh, looking at the world from a worldly point of view, you see? All the spiritual disciplines are about building congruity, keeping that valve open. Practicing the presence of God, for example, which is, I think, the most foundational discipline there is. It's just living with an awareness that what God says is true. And that that, that God is all around you at all times. Being aware of that. Um, Insofar as we do that, right now, the Spirit of God is all around you. You're enveloped in the love of God. Now, if you're aware of that, to that degree... Your awareness is in congruity with what is true. Because as a matter of fact, He is here right now. You are in the presence of God. To the degree that we weren't aware of that, and probably most of us weren't until I just said it now, our awareness was not in congruity with truth. You see? Uh, We were blocking out the most important fact of reality. Namely that God is here. And so by, by becoming aware of his presence, we're creating a congruity there, which opens us up, opens that valve up for the Spirit of God and the, the, the reality of the new creation to flow into us and, to, and begin to flow through us. But when we live as an atheist, when our consciousness is an atheist consciousness, when we're not aware of, of God's presence in, in the room, uh, we're looking at it from a worldly point of view. To that degree, we block it out. And so to that degree, we're not going to experience and manifest the, the truth of new creation. The life of the disciple is about taking care to make sure the valve stays open and taking care that the things, the number of things that can start to close that valve or, or clog that valve and make sure that those things get out. So Paul goes from verse 12 to verse 13 and he talks about forgiveness because one of the all-time great cloggers of the valve is unforgiveness. And So to talk about this, I've asked Vanessa Williams to come and uh, share with us. Just felt last week to ask her to, to share about verse 13, and she agreed to do it. Now, you know Vanessa Williams as this perky, cute announcer. Uh, and, and she announces things, and she's just so bubbly and cute. And she is, all of that, for sure. But there's another dimension to Vanessa that you maybe weren't aware of. Um, if you're going to get into a theological debate with this young woman, you better know what you're talking about. Because this gal can, can uh, she's got a sharp mind, and she knows how to, how to make a point, how to make a case. Uh, she was trained as a lawyer. She graduated from law school. 
She's going to be a lawyer. And then God called her into ministry. And um, so now she's going to Bethel Seminary. And she's an intern here at Wilden, Wilden Hills Church. Uh, she's got a turbocharged brain, knows Greek uh, uh, better than I do. And uh, she's just been a tremendous blessing to us. So would you give a warm welcome to Vanessa Williams? Come up, girl, and share the word. Preach it. You preach it, girl. Go for it. Oh, thank you, Greg. Hello. <laughs> oh, it's so good to be here with all of you, and I am really glad to just have this opportunity to share with all of you guys some of the things that have been important in my life and that also correspond with the things that we've been talking about in Colossians. So in Colossians, as you guys know, we have been in chapter 3 for a while, and we've sort of been hovering over verse 12. And this is the verse in which Paul tells us that people who have submitted their lives to Christ, people who are Christians, that they're called to be merciful and compassionate and patient and all these different attributes that are consistent with God's character and consistent with who God has called us to be. In the next verse, verse 13, what we find out is that Paul says that they should bear with one another, and that they should forgive one another if any of them has a grievance. And I think it's important for us to pause here and just notice that, you know, in that previous verse, Paul just kind of lists a couple of things, but here he stops and um, reminds the Colossians of why this is so important, why forgiveness matters so much. Forgiveness matters because the Lord has forgiven us first. What Paul is doing here is he is reminding the Colossians that forgiveness is not just a good idea or just a nice thing to do. But this is actually something that is central to our faith as Christians. Without forgiveness, there is no gospel. Without forgiveness, there is no good news. Without forgiveness, we are permanently estranged for God, from God. But thank God, he has made a provision for us to be forgiven and to re-enter a relationship with him. So forgiveness is really important. It's a really big deal. It's central to our faith. Without forgiveness, we don't have a Christian faith. So that's why Paul sits here and it really emphasizes the fact that we need to forgive. As forgiven people, we are also called to forgive others. And when we fail to forgive, when we put forgiveness off, when we hold unforgiveness in our hearts, we're living in a way that is inconsistent with who God has called us to be and in a way that is inconsistent with God himself. And there are consequences for that. We will struggle in other areas of our lives when we choose to be unforgiving. We will struggle in our relationship with God. We will struggle in our relationship with others. We will struggle even in our relationship with ourselves. It will be harder to be compassionate and kind and merciful and all those things that Paul lists in verse 12. And this is because unforgiveness puts up barriers in our lives. It blocks us from being able to live in that freedom that God has provided for us. I like to think about this, forgiveness and unforgiveness, as being a little bit like maintaining a garden. So when you have a garden, you know, you go to the store, you buy all the seeds that, of the stuff that you want, and you plant all these plants that you like, and you water them, and you feed them, and you nurture them, and you do everything that you can to help these plants grow up. But that's just the first half of gardening. We also have to pull out weeds as they come into our garden. And when we ignore weeds or just let them grow, they just get bigger and bigger, and the roots go deeper and deeper, and the harder it becomes to pull those out. Likewise, 
When we as Christians want to grow and cultivate things like mercy, compassion, kindness, all these different good things, if we only tend to those good things, but we don't tend to the bad things like unforgiveness, if we don't pull those things out of our lives, they will get bigger and bigger. And just like weeds can choke out your entire garden, take away the life from that garden, we too can become a garden that is full of weeds. So for us as Christians, it's not a question of, if we should forgive, if we should practice forgiving others, but it's how do we do this? So I think one thing that can help us is to, first of all, start off by talking about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting that anything happened. It's not pretending like everything is okay when it's not. It's not ignoring problems. And when you forgive, it doesn't mean that you have to trust the other person. It doesn't mean you have to be friends with the other person. It doesn't even mean that you have to like that other person. And it definitely, definitely, definitely does not mean that you have to subject yourself to the abuse of another person. If another person is hurting you physically or emotionally, it is not an expression of forgiveness to continually let them do that to you. That's not loving to yourself. That's not loving to that other person. That is not Okay, and that's not what we're talking about here. So, <laughs> so what is forgiveness then? What we notice in scripture is that forgiveness is consistently described as a kind of releasing or a canceling of a debt. And forgiveness is when we in our hearts decide to release to cancel a debt, to let it go. It's when we decide that we are not going to hold on to this pain or onto this anger anymore, that we're not going to hold this grievance over and against this other person. It is when we let that person go, when we unclench our fist. And it's also when we step into healing, because it's really hard to find healing when we are holding on to unforgiveness. It's kind of like when someone else wounds us, when they hurt us, we've got this open wound on us, right? And then when, and so they did that, but when we hold unforgiveness, what we do is we tell that person, look at what you did. You did this. You're accountable for this. And we don't let ourselves be healed. So forgiveness is also a really important step for us to be able to find that healing. So how do we release these debts? How do we start the healing process? I think it starts with a conversation with God. I think that conversation might go a little bit like this. Hey, God. That's how I start a lot of my prayers. Hey, God. Um, is there anyone who I might need to forgive? Could you bring that person to mind? Because sometimes we already have someone in mind who we know that we need to forgive, but other times we've, we've forgotten or we've squished things away, and so we need God to call that person to mind. And so again, we might start that conversation with God by saying, hey God, um, is there anyone that I need to forgive? Could you bring that person to mind? Now, when we do that, a couple things could happen. One of the things that could happen is God could bring multiple people to mind. Or maybe you already have multiple people in mind. Or maybe God brings an event to mind in which there were multiple people involved. Maybe there was something that happened where a lot of people did something that was bad to you. Now when this happens, it might feel a little bit overwhelming because it's like, whoa, I've got all these people to forgive. Like, where do I even start? What do I do with all of this? 
So in moments like that, if that happens to you, a good idea is to say, hey God, um, actually there are a lot of people who it seems like I need to forgive, and this is kind of a lot. So could you give me some wisdom and discernment on where I should start? Who should I start with here? Who do I need to forgive first? And let God help you process that and discern that. The next step then, I think, would be something like asking God, could you tell me, uh, this person you brought to mind, could you tell me what it looks like for me to forgive that person? What does it look like? Because you know what? Forgiveness is going to look different in different situations. It's going to depend upon what your relationship is with that other person. It depends on what exactly happened to you. And it's going to be different just even depending on your personality type. So you can ask God, you could say, you know, what does it look like for me to forgive this person? Is it a in-person conversation? Is it a phone call? What does it look like? And as you're envisioning that, um, what I would encourage you to do is ask the Lord to help you notice some different things. Like, what is your posture? What is your facial expression? What do you look like when you're forgiving another person? And what do you sound like? What's your tone of voice? What are the words that you choose to use? What do you look and sound like when you're forgiving that other person? The more we can envision this, the easier it will be for us to actually do in real life. Now, here's a tricky question, a tricky sort of situation that can happen. What if you go through this process and you say, okay, God, could you bring someone to mind? Could you help me um, decide who it is that I need to forgive? God might bring someone to mind and you go, I don't want to forgive that person. I really don't like that person or what that person did was so wrong or what they did was so unjust. I don't, I don't think I can do it. Well, my encouragement to you would be is in that sort of a situation is to just stay there in that moment and just be honest with God and just tell him, I don't think I can forgive this person and here's why. And just let him know where you are, where you're at, because God can't work with us when we're being dishonest with him. If we're fake and we pretend like, oh, okay, sure, yeah, I forgive that person. I mean, we're not getting anywhere. God can't work with us when we're trying to lie to him. And it's kind of silly anyway, as though God doesn't know what's already happening in your heart. Like, really? So stay honest with God. Stay in that moment and ask him to work in your heart. I know that I have had times where I've thought, I don't even want to want to forgive that person. If that's where you are, great. Stay there and ask God to help you and then ask him to move you in that direction of forgiveness. Another tricky sort of situation that could happen is what if you have to forgive someone who's unrepentant? What if that other person isn't sorry for what they did? Then what do you do? Can you still forgive them? I would say yes, absolutely. And how do we know that? We know that because while we were still sinners, God forgave us. So God extended his forgiveness towards us before we were repentant. And so absolutely, forgiveness can happen before the other person repents. And again, you might want to ask God, okay, what does this look like? This person isn't sorry. They don't regret what they did. How do I forgive this person? One other tricky situation that might come up for you that I know has come up for me many times is what if you go through this process and you ask God, okay, who is it that I need to forgive? And he brings someone to mind, and that person is you. What if you need to forgive yourself for something? How do you do that? 
I actually wasn't even aware of this sort of a thing until it was a couple years ago. One of my friends, um, he was telling me about something that happened, and he said, you know, I know that other people have forgiven me for this. I know that God has forgiven me for this, but, you know, I just can't forgive myself for this. And when I heard that, I thought, are you kidding me? Like, how self-righteous are you? Seriously, God can forgive you, but your standards are so much higher than God's that you can't forgive yourself? Really? So when that happened, uh, there was two bad things, actually. First of all, I was judging him, obviously, so that was the first bad thing. (laughs) But the second thing was, when he said that and I was judging him, I realized, actually, I'm like that a lot. It's actually really hard for me to forgive myself for things. When I make mistakes, when I do something that's wrong, I really struggle to forgive myself. I want to hold that against myself. And so what I realized was that's not okay. If God requires us to be forgiving people, that doesn't mean to everyone else and not you. You're not quite that special that you don't, you aren't allowed to be forgiven. And so in those moments, we just have to ask God, you know, could you help me? Could you show me what it looks like for me to forgive myself? One other thing that I'd like to mention is that sometimes when it's hard for us to forgive another person or to forgive ourselves, we might feel a little bit stuck. We might feel like, I don't know what to do next. I'm in this position. What do I do? And so a question that you might want to ask God is, why is it so hard for me to forgive this person? And you might think that you know the answer to that. I think a lot of times we think, well, it's so obvious. What they did was so wrong. It was so unjust. Isn't it obvious why I don't want to forgive them? Maybe, but maybe not, actually. Because sometimes there's a deeper issue that's going on. Sometimes there's something else that's happening within us. Sometimes we don't want to forgive someone because we want to control a situation. Sometimes we feel like by holding on to unforgiveness, now we can control things. And actually... Um, That makes sense on certain levels. If someone did something to you, if someone violated you in some way, they exercise control over you against your will. And so it only makes sense that we would naturally want to somehow gain control back over the situation. And sometimes we can feel like unforgiveness will give us that control, but it doesn't. And so if that's an issue, just let God raise that to mind And ask him to help you work through that. That might be something you have to work through before you can work through forgiveness. Another thing that's really common is sometimes we don't want to forgive because we have fear. There are lots of things that we might be afraid of. And one of the things is, is if something really bad happened to you, you might be afraid that that thing is going to happen again. And so sometimes it can feel like if we hold unforgiveness, we can protect ourselves from that thing ever happening again. But truthfully, unforgiveness doesn't protect us from anything. It will not protect you from other people hurting you. And so if that's something that's going on for you, and it's completely possible, depending upon what happened to you, it could be really scary to let go of unforgiveness. And so you can just ask God, can you help me work through this fear that I have? One last thing I will say about this is that Things in the kingdom always happen better when we can do them in community. When we can ask brothers and sisters who we trust to pray with us and to pray for us, that really can help us to be able to focus in on what it is that that we need to do, that can help give us strength for what it is that we need to do. So I would encourage you to find people who you trust, people who you feel safe with, to help you pray through this sort of a process. All right. 
Greg, you want to come back up here? Thank you, Vanessa. <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. The girl's got the gift. <laughs> I just love to see uh, what God's doing in your life, and thank you for blessing us with that. It's all about congruity. I, I love the way she painted the picture of, of envisioning, envisioning yourself forgiving the other person, getting it down to the concrete level. Uh, what do you say? What's your posture like? What's your expression? If you can't see it, you're never going to be able to do it. And even if you don't want to want to forgive the person, out of, out of obedience, just envision it. And what would it, pretend? What would it look like if you did want to forgive them? Pretend, because that's how it often feels when we're envisioning truth. Because we're so used to uh, envisioning our old self that when we do the real self, it feels like pretend. But if you pretend it, you might find since the core of who you are is submitted to God, there's a yesness that happens, and that vision begins to pull you in that direction, and your wants begin to change. You got to be able to see it before you can ever really do it. Uh, thanks for that, that good word. It's all about congruity. It's all about congruity, and you guys like. Like Vanessa said, that there's, there's no clog in the valve quite like, like unforgiveness. It's like, I got this picture last night when she was sharing this, of this like hairball in the sink, you know? And, and, and like, you get a clogged sink and you got to go down there with a coat hanger, you know? You finally pull it out, this giant dripping gooey hair yeah. thing, you know? <laughs> Ew. But see, it, it, it clogging the sink, you got to get rid of it. And when we've got unforgiveness, it's like a big hairball there. And real, the beautiful reality of the new creation's there, wanting to get in, but we got a hairball there hanging on to our unforgiveness. Get that coat hanger of the Holy Spirit and pull it out. Hallelujah. <laughs> See it and believe it and walk in. Hallelujah. Let that furry hairball just drip and throw it away. Glory to God and be free. <laughs> All right. Uh, so gross. <laughs> I, know, yeah, yeah. I told you the gross analogies stick the best. That's what, all right. I, I'm going to ask Vanessa to close us in prayer. Um, and as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer team uh, to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, uh, it's, maybe it's about forgiveness, a wound that happened and you just can't seem to let go. Maybe it's about something else. But uh, coming up here and spend some time praying with these folks, they'd, they'd love to pray with you. Would you stand as Vanessa closes us in prayer? Lord, Father, God, we just thank you so much for the way that you are working in our lives. God, I just pray that for all of us, that you would help us to stay aware of your presence. Lord, that we would hear what it is that you have to say to us. Lord, if any of us has an issue of unforgiveness, God, I just pray that you would raise that to mind and help us to work through those things. And God, we just thank you in advance. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you have done, everything you are doing, and everything that you will do. Thank you, God. We love you, and we just desire to know you better and to grow in all the things that you have before us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hey, stay. Stick around and get some donuts out there with our volunteers. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.